Our world is lost in unnecessary fear and hurt. Our systems seem scientifically engineered to make you small, powerless, and always waiting for the next great leader who will fix the problems around us. Worse, we're witnessing neighbor versus neighbor while warfare breaks out around our family tables. But you have access to a spirit, a strength that enlarges and empowers you. Even better, you don't need to wait for the next big movement. You can heal the world. It's time for governance by Grace. Welcome to Gracearchy with Jim Babka. I want to talk a little bit about how I met David Brisbane, because during the pandemic, my faith changed. It didn't really like I didn't have it before and then I had it after. It just changed. The nature of what I believe changed. And this happened when a guy that I met on LinkedIn introduced me to his pastor. His pastor was Dave Brisbane. And I started to follow Dave and listen to what he's got to say. And I heard something I hadn't heard before. And of course, since that time, I've gotten to know Dave quite a bit. He is in, in many ways one of the valued spiritual guides in my life. It's really odd that here I am, you know, at this point in my life, and I'd be saying that about Christianity. And, and I've been a Christian all my life. I grew up in a very strange way in Christianity and sort of left it behind in my 30s. And reconnecting with the teachings of Jesus has just been an awe-inspiring thing for me. I don't want to say too much more and, and steal the thunder here, but that's how it happened. And I am fascinated that all of us have connected with Dave in this way because he's got so much insight into what I'll call the Hebrew Jesus. But we'll let Dave take it away. Well, you know, it's uh, we should bring Dave in and because uh, uh, Dave, yeah, I met. Aboard. Yeah, I just met Dave once. I mean, we've we've had a chance to uh, talk once on the phone and once at a breakfast that you arranged, Bill. And and uh, the conversation was came very natural, but it came in a, a, a for me a very surprising way. We were both speaking about largely the same things, but in completely different language and coming from a completely different angle on it. That was my and, experience uh, too. But it was really like cool because where we ended up, it's like we kind of understood the other person's, you can nod if you agree, Dave, we kind of understood where the other guy was coming <laughs> from, right? Like, oh, okay, that's a different way of saying this. And, and we had a lot of those kind of moments together, which was really kind of cool. It was a very unique conversation, a very special breakfast. Dave, I want to start off, let's let the audience get to know you just a wee bit better. Uh, tell us who, who is Dave Brisbane and how do you get to be where you're uh, on this show today? What's your journey? Oh, well, I got to be uh, on this journey by being uh, kind of kicked off the horse, I suppose. It, uh, growing up Catholic, I, I did all the, the things that you're supposed to do as a Catholic. And uh, Actually, in 12 years of, of Catholic high school, I so identified with some of the monks who taught me during that time that uh, I joined the order uh, that they were a part of. Found out really quickly that that vocation was not mine, and so left the order and started just uh, working through my 20s, primarily looking for a music career. Um, got married late in my 20s and was divorced in my early 30s, and that started the, the whole ball of wax. Uh, to be a divorced man, still identifying as a Catholic, uh, was really traumatic for me. I never expected myself to be in that position. And so it started a quest for some kind of meaning and purpose. The depression that set in when my daughter was shuttling back and forth between mom and dad and the things that, that uh, happened during divorces uh, just put me on a quest for meaning and purpose, a reason to keep breathing, really. 
And uh, I figured Christianity been there, done that. So I was looking everywhere else and eventually got led back into Christianity, but in an altered setting, in an evangelical setting. And it was there that I needed to come to terms with Jesus, because even in this setting, there were practices and doctrine and theology that I just couldn't parse. I couldn't square it. And um, I had to figure out, am I really a Christian? Am I really a follower of Jesus? Already in leadership in that church, both in music leadership and also in pastoral training, um, I figured the place to look would be at the origin of things, to look at the origins of Christianity, because probably truth would be the most accessible at that point. And so I began a study of Christian origins as my focus in the pastoral training. And I found that there were Hebrew and Aramaic roots to Christianity, which I'd never heard about before. And that led me to a study of the context of the original languages. And it was there that I met a Jesus that I am convinced I can follow for the rest of my life. Dave, that's so crazy to me. Can I just drop in on you for a second? Of course. Uh, we like to think that we know Jesus, but you're talking about what sounds like a different person entirely. <laughs> well, here's the interesting thing. I had to become entirely ready to leave Jesus in order to become ready to see him again for the first time. And, and that was the, the craziest experience until I was ready to actually leave Christianity and leave Jesus as a follower of Jesus. Um, I was not prepared to be able I guess to have the palate cleansed, if I can use that sort of terminology, to be able to see and accept who Jesus was becoming through the study that I was doing. And yes, it was completely altered and it was worldview altering for me as well. We're keenly interested in worldview here and we're keenly interested in it because we're, we typically are talking about social issues here. We're talking about how we can interact with one another here. And it's become increasingly evident to me in recent days that uh, that not only is our society disintegrated, but we as people frequently are disintegrated. We're dealing with various traumas and stuff that tends to break us apart and so forth. And that the there is an opportunity here in the person of Jesus to bring about a, a healing for an individual, to bring about a healing for a society. And that normally when people hear something like that, they now expect that what we're going to do is we're going to put on uh, blue suits, white shirt, and red ties. We're going to salute the flag, and we're going to get everybody to the political rally. And we're going to win the claim the country back for Jesus uh, with flag in hand and bombers flying overhead. God bless America. It's going to be great. Um, or <laughs> I'm cracking up over here, man. <laughs> or or we're going to go down some social path, right? We're going to kind of take Jesus. We're going to suck him out. We're going to take some of the teachings that he has, and we're going to sprinkle them all about. And we're going to develop more of a social gospel uh, that that's a, a bit more on the woke side. And, and that's going to be the Jesus. We're going to kind of denude him of any personal power. So I guess the key question we're looking here to address today, and we're looking to address it in a way that I want, I really want anybody who's listening who is not religious, not going to church, not particularly even interested in Christianity, to, to be able to come and sit down and have a conversation, honestly, about what might actually be a relationship or approach that brings people, integrates themselves, brings people together, addresses social problems. So I guess what we're talking about here is who is Jesus, right, Dave? Mm -hmm. Yes. 
And what we're going to find out as we look at a Hebrew and an Aramaic Jesus, what we're going to find out is that we need to take a journey ourselves as modern Westerners before we can ever sit at the feet of, of, of a Jesus who is an Eastern man. Yeah, the Middle East is East in terms of its outlook and its worldview and its character much more than West. And so we are going to need to take the journey to be able to apprehend what's going on. The difference between East and West is profound. Um, the, the difference between Hebrew and Greek thought is profound. Oh, and yeah. so we have Jesus here, an Eastern man with Eastern values speaking an Eastern language to an Eastern audience. And we're basically reading their mail, if you will. We're reading these, these accounts and these stories and these teachings, but we're reading them through a Western point of view which is legal and which is logical and rational and a completely different way than the Hebrews processed information and saw their relationship with God. They saw their relationship with God primarily as experiential. We see it as primarily intellectual. And so there's a, there's a vast difference between the way we go about this. Jesus has often been portrayed as a social warrior, as a social revolutionary. Mm -hmm. And Jesus has profound things to say about society and about politics, but it's never from the top down. It's never from the policy standpoint. My reading of Jesus is that he was intensely micro. He was working on individual heart lights, getting people turned on from the inside out so that they could be the catalyst for a change within the community. But it came from the inside out. And so whenever the mantle of power was trying to be placed on Jesus' shoulders, he would shrug it off because that was not his mission that was not the way he went about it i i just i've more and more find it disheartening you know the 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 ten commandments say that you know not to use god's name in vain and there has been an attempt a, a repeated attempt and i just was watching a video this morning where it's this is there's a new nationalism that's creeping up again and in the discussion of that nationalism they're actually invoking jesus as in, in a warrior sense carrying crucifixes and pointing them at people and, and, you know, and, and, and equating, you know, bringing Donald Trump into this. And I'm not, I, I don't want this to get to partisan in the, in the least, but it's very, very interesting that, that if, if you're following Jesus, the message is anti-coercive, right? It does start there in, in a relational state with us as, as persons. It is, as you put it, micro. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and Jesus is saying that the greatest thing that we are going to get from following his way of living life is the truth that will make us free. We have to be absolutely free. And the freedom, though, is the understanding that unless we're free, we cannot choose love in any way that love is really love. If love is coerced in any way, um, if, if it's uh, subject to the, the, the needs of the group even and, and the, the, the group think, then it's no longer love. We need to be free, even within the groups in which we find ourselves living and participating. And so to equate Jesus' message with anything political is to lose the sense of the meaning of it all. And so this marrying of, of politics and religion uh, is completely antithetical to the way Jesus would teach, although it will be played out, of course, lived out in the political and in the group. But the message itself is, is interior. Jesus was a contemplative and a mystic. Once you start to understand him from this point of view, and that changes the whole method and the madness of how he is trying to get people to find their way back to the Father. And this can be understood 
completely outside of any religious context, but it can't be understood outside a community. And, and there's a difference between those two. So okay. community I, is political though, right? I'm sorry? Community is sort of, is political, right? In, well, of in course, the sense that, and you know, we all have our different social, but that community yeah. does not have to be a. Doesn't uh -oh. have to be. We lose. I'm sorry, no, ask me that again, Bill. The community doesn't have to be what? I, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by the this. The political doesn't have to be. I got you. Yeah. I was going to yeah. say the, the community doesn't have to be religious. In other words, you don't have to be a part of the Christian church to follow Jesus. But there's no way that you can follow Jesus without being an integral part of community. There you go. Because that's, that's love what I was needs for. an object. Right? Love needs a beloved. And so there has to be community. There has to be service. There has to be a way to work this out. But our ideas of Jesus as being part and parcel to Christian thought, especially Western Christian thought, which is why so many people are leaving him, uh, is something that we do need to de-link. We need to understand that, that Jesus stands apart from what has become Christianity, but the two can also work completely hand in glove. This is, this is not a polemic against Christianity. I have chosen to teach within um, the milieu of Christianity as much as I can, although there would be Christians who would say that I have left the camp. Um, because of the way that I interpret Jesus. But my goal is to stay within Christianity and help us to find Jesus' way again and find our way back to the Father within that system. I want to go back. What, something you're seeing right now, I want to tie all the way back to the very beginning that you said, and it, it has to do with something that when you and I met for breakfast for the first time uh, was almost shocking. Not because I'd already begun thinking about this a little bit and I'd begun talking to other people, but the way that you put it was much more just so. And I and I want to make sure we're, we're making this clear. So you're talking about it doesn't have to be in a church setting. And you talked earlier about cleansing your spiritual palate, so to speak. There was kind of a letting go uh, to, to, to refine Jesus. And there is right now, you said people are leaving the church, and, and I think there's like tons of good reasons about this. And a large part of my motivation for doing this program, ha it has to do with that. Like, I think that people have been given some really poopy th theology, right? It's just not good. And I want to understand more about this kind of wandering away and the security of wandering away, of, of knowing that you can go somewhere and that that doesn't necessarily make you lost, because when you brought this up to me the first time that we met, you had just a, a clear way of stating that this is this is the large part of this is flat out normal. So can we get into that a little bit? Sure. It's um it's kind of like a plate of spaghetti that's all one noodle, and trying to figure out where you actually start. I mean, there, there's so many strands to this. Um, well, should people be concerned if their son or daughter are going through a process of deconstruction? Let's start there. Okay, okay, perfect. <clears throat> they can't help but be concerned. They, they won't be able to be helped but be concerned and, and be alarmed at it. But it's the absolute only way that any of us ever get to anything that approaches um, a spiritual awakening or a true conviction of faith. This is the, I guess, one of the main differences between the Hebrew and, and the Greek mode of thought. 
Um, the Greeks believe that we can intellectually move through and get to a place of understanding. And it's all about logic. It's all about the law of non-contradiction. We go in a neat line from premise to conclusion with only one thing being true at a time. And if we can get to that one truth, then we're going to be okay. And that is who we are heir to. We are the, um, we're the, the receivers of both Roman law and, and Greek philosophy, which is what modern Christianity is more based on than the original Hebrew teachings. Hebrews are interested in a dialectic. Hebrews are interested in a give and take and a, a flow, a conversation, even a confrontation between opposing ideas, not to get to the point that one is right and the other is wrong, but to get to a point where you can stand between the horns of the paradox or the contradiction and move through, not trying to resolve life because life never really resolves, but get to a place of understanding of the way that life really works and what this, this, this God is all about and how we relate to God and how we connect with each other because of that. So we are in our certainty. Fear. Certainty is to a large degree a myth though, right? I mean, like how many things can you actually be certain of? We're constantly put into situations as human beings where we have to make decisions with incomplete information and, and sometimes even really faulty information. Mm -hmm. And, and I, it seems to me that it's, it's psychologically necessary to have a method of being able to deal with that. Absolutely. And, and, you know, most psychologists will tell you that it is our intolerance of uncertainty that drives all of our pathology. And so our need for certainty is born out of fear. Jesus is trying to get us to a place of trust, which even in our uncertainty, we can have conviction. Now, conviction and certainty are not the same thing, but your convictions can function like certainty as long as you've moved into trust because once we begin to trust then we don't need the certainty of an intellectual understanding or any kind of empirical proof to be able to operate as if these things are true jesus way is a way of getting to that trust which gives us the conviction which allows us to live vulnerably which is the only way we'll ever connect with each other fearlessly at the same time and and that's the key it has to be experiential and so Jesus doesn't give us a highfalutin theology. What he gives us is a way of living life that will give us the experience of the trustworthiness of the Father that we can start to live this way. We can actually love the enemy because we will be confident enough that we can do that without killing ourselves. We can do that in a way that we are still bringing everything together and seeing how everything belongs. And so it is that realization, yes, life is uncertain. There are very few things in physical life that we can be sure of, death and taxes, right? But in the unseen parts of life where the spirit and the kingdom lie, nothing is certain. And we're only kidding ourselves and trying to put the illusion forward if we say that there are certainties to our theology. So let me see if this statement resonates with you. I'm, I'm, I'm honing in on this experience idea uh, in, in asking it. I once heard someone suggest that a large part of the reason that people's children, when they grow up, leave the church is that they came to church expecting to find Jesus and arrived only and didn't find him there. They found a rock band, smoke, lights, you know, a guy in, 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 two, in two tight jeans giving uh, a relevant message of some kind that was supposed to come through the week. They didn't really actually meet Jesus while they were there. 
And you're suggesting that there actually is a relational point. There is an experiential connection that can be created there. Yes, absolutely. And the things that you're talking about are cultural and every generation is going to have its cultural style that they're going to attach to the way that they do community. You know, when people get together, all we can really do is eat food, sing songs and um, tell stories. I mean, that's basically all we do. We can dress it up in different ways and we can wear funny hats, but that's what we're doing. And every generation is going to do it that way. So it's not that the, the rock bands or the too tight jeans or anything is the problem. But what the problem is, if we are still operating in the first half of life in terms of first half of life principles, in what is a second half of life way uh, that Jesus is trying to give us. And by that, I mean, first half of life dealing with externals, with dealing with acquisition and accomplishment and performance, the necessary part of our lives in our 20s and 30s when we're building up our platform in life only to find out at some point in the midlife crisis that those things run out of gas and they no longer give us the meaning and purpose that they once held earlier in our lives. At that point, if we can make the transition to the second half of life where we look interiorly, instead of acquisition and accomplishment, now it's about relinquishment and state of being and finding out that our value comes not from out there in circumstances or performance, but interiorly because we're here breathing and really for no other reason. To make that transition is the transition that Jesus is talking about. That's why he gives us all that iconography and all that imagery that we have to pick up our cross daily and follow him. That if we wanna find our life, we have to lose it because until we literally vanquish the ego, literally let go and descend into a place of simplicity so that we can build up from that point um, we're not going to be able to follow Jesus. You know, he said it over and over again. You know, if you're not willing to hate your father, mother, sister, brother, your, your children, even your own life, then you're not worthy of following me. And that sounds horrendous to us. But what he's talking about is everything that we rely on for support. And in that culture, family was everything. If we're not willing to let go of all of that and actually get down to ground zero and see what is left, what's at the bottom of the dog pile, you know, what is, what is truth is left when we're ready to sell everything like the young man who asked him for eternal life, sell it all, then we're not going to be able to move on. That's the message that's not coming through. Whether you do it with smoke machines and rock bands or whether you do it in a contemplative atmosphere, that message is the one that needs to come through. And of course, ultimately, this is about a contemplative way. We do need silence and solitude and stillness and simplicity in order to let go, to quiet ourselves. But the, the culture, if it's advancing that, then it's good. If it's not, then it's in the way and it's a distraction. Okay, but but you know, back to my point, there the, the this everybody sitting in rows listening to one dude speak, regardless of what he's wearing, funny hats or tight jeans. Um, you know, the, the the kind of you know relevant rock show that's not quite as good as the one you would get if you paid for an actual concert. All, all of these things, I mean, they may be nice, and you're right, there's the limit to how many different ways you can put this together, but they are Greco-Roman kind of in their nature. They, they're they very much, especially the, the, the Greco part, I mean, they're very much about learning and knowledge, and, and, and the experience that you get isn't an actual experience of relationship, it's an experience of entertainment. And, and so I, I, I would push back a little bit and suggest that it's almost impossible, not only to get to the contemplative part, but the relational part. 
So, you know, we get together, you, me, and Bill get together and we sit down and we have breakfast together, right? And the scripture says two or three are gathered together. You know, that's where I'm at. I mean, that's church, if you ask me, right? That's three people sitting down and beginning to have a uh, a conversation together. And and I got a lot out of uh, that time that we sat together. Um, I would argue more. I, I learned about you as a human being, right? There was connection there. Um, kind of the things that we do in these settings almost seem like they're designed to avoid the stickiness, the messiness of relationship. We're going to go very clean. We're going to have the following stuff. We know we can expect and count on it to be that way. There'll be very few surprises and then we'll go back home. We'll, we've done our duty and we can begin to live our life again. And we'll get to say hi to some people we like as we're going in and out the narthex. I, I'm just, am I wrong? And in, 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 do you take my point? I completely take your point. And I think there is a point at which um, church gets in the way, the way it's being done now. Uh, when churches get too large, when they get too noisy, when they when they get too uh, financially focused or, or whatever. Or even too apologetic. That, or even too apologetic. Like there's this whole area of, of, uh, of Christianity where they're basically trying to find the proofs, you know, the evidence for the historical Jesus and the resurrection and, you know, creation was in six days or whatever it was. Like all these different things to me seem like they're distractions from, from what is kind of a... a, a for some people, it may be even a scary place. It's getting into relationship and then starting to deal with the stuff that's in, in our own muck, right? Like, mm -hmm. I, I don't want to think about those things. I'd rather be diverted right now. Uh, I don't want to hear about your stuff either because I got my own stuff, man. I just, it seems to me like that's that's what the two and three gathered together is really about. Yes. But, but here's, let me say this about that. Um <laughs> When we do get together, oh, let me put it this way. Jesus' message is so entirely micro that it's basically anarchy in terms of trying to hang a church, a group, a movement, or an institution on it. You can't do it. I mean, there's yes. a reason why Western Christianity is so much more focused on Paul than on Jesus in terms of the actual words that we use to regulate the institution of church. It's because Paul was dealing with institutions. De Jesus is dealing with individuals. And so if you're really going to follow Jesus, that is something that is completely personal interior to you. But we still need to get together as a community and do what we mm -hmm. do. And as we do that, then we're going to be taking on the, the community, the rules, the style, the culture, the laws that every group needs in order to survive as itself. And that's, that's needed. As long as from the top down, from the leadership to everybody and the, the, the whole church understands that, yes, what we're doing here as a group is in a way antithetical to what we're going to be doing interiorly. This is where we get together at points to reinforce, to remind ourselves of what we're doing, to, to live in community, to love each other, to serve each other and do the things that community does, but then to funnel each one in the community toward that interior experience, to that silence and solitude and stillness and simplicity. And as much as we can reflect that, of course, in the group, the better, but the group just by its definition is going to be at odds with what's happening inside. But if we're going to have any kind of group at all, then we're going to have to compromise and balance micro and macro, interior and exterior, and all those sorts of things. But if we don't even have a, a clue or the slightest inkling that this is really where we're going, if our institution is at odds with, antithetical, antagonistic toward 
contemplative way and, and, and mystical experience, then of course it's not going to reflect anything that we're talking about. Well, uh, you, you know, you throw out anarchy like we'd be scared of that, but you know, this is grace archy, man. So we're, <laughs> 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 we're ready to go, you know, now we're all, now we're, we're hitting it. Uh, because honestly, I, I, I mean, I couldn't agree with you more that you can't, you can't really contain this, right? It doesn't hang on that, on, on our traditional structures in the way that, you know, and, and, and everybody's experience of mileage is going to vary. But this is important because to me, because it, it feels like one of those things, if we get this wrong, we're going to start to get other things wrong uh, socially as well, right? If, if we believe in more of an authoritarian type of church, we're probably going to believe in a more authoritarian type of culture. Uh, you know, th this doesn't seem to me to be a minor issue. Mm -hmm. It's kind of the, the spiritual analog of chaos theory. A small change at the input is going to yield a vast change at the output. So if we aren't really holding to Jesus' principles as a church, you know, as, as leadership within a church every single day, then it, it just blows out in no time whatsoever. So what you're saying is very germane that, yes, you know, we need to hold to these principles and realize, yeah, we are we are setting up our churches in this representational way, in, in this very Greek way, because that's what we got to work with. You know, our churches aren't really set up to have the kind of dialectic sort of interaction that the rabbis had with groups of, of people that they were teaching in ancient times. Um, may, in small groups, we can go more toward that. And we do, even in, in our church as well. And a lot of the other churches too, they try to do that in the small groups. But if we're not aware of this is what we're trying to hold on to, then it's going to go off the rails really quickly. And most importantly, people who are coming in the door will have no clue as to what it is that it means to follow Jesus in the way that he was trying to get across, which was difficult even for his own followers at that time to understand. So imagine fast forwarding 2000 years in a different culture, how difficult it is for us to make that leap. Mm hmm. So you've repeatedly used words that I'm sure that there's people in the audience right now, having continued to listen, are begging me to get to and let you actually say what you need to say here. I keep bringing up something else or we keep going another way. And those words were contemplative in particular, but mystical has been peppered in there as well. What is contemplative? What is what? And even more so, what is mystical? Because I can even imagine some of the people that have stuck through to this point are like, oh, OK, okay here we go. You know, we're going to get a little bit of, you know crazy here. So let's define our terms here. Where, what does it mean to be more contemplative and, and what is a, myst, a proper mystical experience? Okay, that's, that's perfect. And we, we needed to do that. Mystic and mystical are four letter words in, in most uh, conservative Christian churches, um, because it's equated with the occult, that, that somehow to be a mystic is also to move into the occult, which is, uh, you know, anti-Christian because it's aligned with uh, demonic powers or whatever. Nothing could be further from the truth in the terms of the way that we're talking about it. A mystic is someone who has experiences of, of God, let's say, experience of God, experiences of the divine that are not intellectual. They are completely experiential. It's presence to presence, pure and, and unadulterated. What would, what would be an example that the most secular person in the world could relate to right now? What is a mystical experience? A mystical experience would be the one that a woman has when her infant is placed on her chest after delivery and nothing exists except that tiny little face. 
time stands still. There are no thoughts in the head. We're not thinking about it. We're not going to go run and get our camera and take a picture of it. We are transfixed. We are just in the presence of this miracle, um, this breakthrough of our small egoic container into something where everything is connected and, and, and connected even at a divine level, whether we understand that in a religious way or not. It's when we're standing on the seashore and we're seeing a sunset that just transfixes us in such a way that we're part of a living painting um, and there are no words to describe it. And the moment we do run for our camera to take a picture, we have left that experience. It's just presence to presence with nothing in between. We've all experienced this. Sports people experience it in, in the flow of the game. Artists experience it in the flow of what they're doing. Musicians experience it. When we're at worship at church, we can experience it where all thought just goes away and we are larger than ourselves. We are connected to everyone else. That is a mystical experience. And that's all we're really talking about here. You know, Jesus had mystical experiences all the time. That's the way he prayed. He would always go out to a lonely place in silence and solitude and stay for days sometimes uh, in, in, a, in a type of prayer that was presence to presence. He coaches us when he gives us the Lord's Prayer to go off into our own corner, both interiorly and exteriorly into a place where we can commune with God, but really without words. He says, the Father already knows what you need before you ask. Don't use lots of words. Just be present. That's a mystical experience. And so and that is throughout our, our tradition, right? So that mystical experience then is uh, can be achieved in part, uh, correct me if I'm wrong and elaborate, please, if we're willing to be contemplative. In other words, we don't run away. We choose to sit still to allow the mystical experience to happen. Contemplative practice <clears throat> are the means by which we obtain mystical experience, right? So contemplative practice includes activities and tools uh, and, and practices that allow us to have mystical experience. It's the practice of building awareness. It's the practice of being able to step away from that constant thought stream that locks us into the small sphere around our heads and keeps us inside our own self-consciousness. To be able to get better and better at transcending that, to lay down your thoughts, to be able to sit in pure presence, and then take that into your day as mindfulness, where you're only thinking about the thing you're actually doing, and then even a step beyond that, you're aware of what you're doing without thinking about it, which makes you the most effective and efficient and attractive you'll ever be. That type of practice is what's taking us into mystical experience. So the contemplative is the doing, if you will, and the mystical is the being, at least the way that I'm trying to define it. Mm -hmm. and, and for you personally, how long have you been engaged in this um, approach and this understanding? And tell me, uh, share a, a testimony, if you will, like what has this meant to you? Well, it's, it's meant everything. Um, and it's about 30 years now. I'm going to ask uh, you to narrow it down just a little bit. <laughs> sure. Oh, then, then let's, let's narrow it down from everything. <laughs> yes. Just a little bit. Okay. Okay. <laughs> a wee bit. Uh, I am a very intellectual 
Lee based person, like, like most Westerners, but maybe a little bit more so on the OCD side, you know, on the perfectionist side, that that's just my natural bent and, and the way I process things. And so when I came back to Christianity in my early thirties and realized I really needed to figure out what was going on here, I need to figure out who Jesus was and, and how that translated into church. If I was going to be able to stay, I went about it in my characteristic way. I started studying everything that I could get my hands on and reading everything I could get my hands on. I started talking not only to the pastors at my church, but also priests and, and pastors at other churches. Uh, a lot of it revolved around Catholicism again, because Catholicism is the, the branch of Christianity in the West that has preserved contemplative practice and, and mystical experience. Um, but until I was introduced to the contemplatives, and Thomas Merton, of course, was, was the, the kind of shining star, especially at the beginning. But then moving from him to Henry Nouwen to the Desert Fathers and Mothers and on and on and on, I started to understand that there was a different way to process what it was that I was trying to learn. And not just through the intellect, but through experience. And then when I actually started practicing centering prayer and contemplative um, activities myself, that's when I finally started to understand what it was these mystics and contemplatives were saying, because really we're trying to express the inexpressible. This, this mystical experience is what happens in real time. It's like music. It exists for as long as the notes are ringing in the air, and then it's gone. And then if you try to take a snapshot of it or you try to think about it, your words are have taken a snapshot of it, it's changed it already. And so it was the actual experience that then allowed me to reread these contemplatives and mystics and actually start to understand what they were saying, because now I had the experience myself. It was a 10 year long process for me. And I'm not saying that it'll be 10 years for everybody, please understand. Um, I think because of who I was and the fact that the church I was in was not supportive of any of this activity. I was doing it on my own. And that 30 years ago, there were so much fewer um, people and books and, and uh, resources for the contemplative. It was really hard to find things. And so I was kind of at odds and I was fighting through this on my own for about 10 years, trying to balance the intellectual and the experiential and how they did work together. Because it's not that intellect is bad and experience and mystical is good, it's that we need to balance and blend the two. But it was about 10 years before I felt like I really broke through to a place where I could, was getting comfortable with the balance and I felt myself actually starting to move now into better emotional regulation, into better um, relational regulation and uh, other effects that were happening but then they broke through into a place where I could actually use them better. The, the way that this all came down to me, I suppose, at that 10-year mark was just the realization that if God's love was perfect, then God couldn't love me anymore and God couldn't love me any less. There was nothing I could do to make God love me anymore or any less. From an intellectual point of view, it's still about performance. It's still about accomplishment. It's still yes. about proving ourselves worthy that we have passed the bar, hit the standard, this legal standard. And then to break through and realize it has nothing to do with that. It's not what makes us different that makes us acceptable. It's what makes us the same. 
And to, to break through to that, that realization was something that has now been taking off in the last 20 years. This idea that we are separated from God, that we have to perform in some way, seems to infect a lot of, it doesn't, it doesn't matter what religion even we're talking about, but it does seem to be kind of at the core of religion, that we need some kind of mediator. Um, you know, the story in Exodus where they couldn't, they sent Moses to talk to God because they they, they couldn't do it. This seems to be actually a very, that, that seems to describe something that's inherently psychological, that we're not worthy in some way. Uh, where we pick this up or how this all comes to be, I'm, I'm trying to understand or learn about now. But if you were, if you believe yourself to be less than, and if shame starts to creep into to your being, it's, you know, I got to hide who I really am. I got to be very careful. I got to protect this. I got to do that. I got to start getting, I'm more and more worried about my reputation. I start to maybe build up an image or a face for other people to look at. Um, these seem to be kind of the opposite of the direction that you just described going. When you went contemplative, you were running from those things. You're running from shame. You're running from putting on a mask and a facade to be out there to present yourself. You're trying to come back to some kind of central place where you really are at. Um, and it seems like this might be really, really important. I want to deal with this on a couple different levels. Uh, I want to deal with this on an individual level first. So let's talk a little bit about trauma. Uh, let's talk a little bit about addiction, if we could. Like, what is, you know, some of these some of these things that you know we're dealing with as individuals that are really challenging and difficult. What, how, do, how, how does the contemplative process begin to heal and preserve those things? Oh, it's great that you brought that up. Actually, about 25 years ago, I got introduced to the recovery community, substance abuse recovery community um, at the musical level. I was, I was playing in uh, a band that was playing for a, a recovery group, but that grew into actual working with um, recovering addicts and alcoholics and, and getting more and more involved. Um, as I learned the 12 steps, I was asked to present the 12 steps on a monthly basis from a New Testament uh, point of view which kind of harmonized those things. Very early on, I realized that everybody is recovering from something. Every, say, everybody that has, say that again. Say that again. <laughs> everybody is recovering from something, right? So that includes and, everybody that's listening to the show right now. Every single one of us. We all have unfinished business. We all have things from our past. You talked about trauma. You know, from a family of origin point of view, we all, none of us get out of childhood unscathed. And some of us, you know, are, are so traumatized in childhood that we got knots tied in our cord that it's going to take us the rest of our lives and maybe we'll never really get them untangled, but we can do a lot better and we can get a lot of those knots out, but we have to get down into the unconscious where they actually reside. These core beliefs that we come out of childhood believing about ourselves, about the way the world works, about our relationship with others, you know, is it basically predatory out there or is it basically friendly out there? Well, uh, we'll be colored a lot by the way that we were raised and those things carry through with us. You know, the way that we had to survive our childhood doesn't go away just because we leave our home of origin and the circumstances change. Those motor along and the unconscious is what's really driving the bus. And then you fast forward and then how are we dealing with these thought and behavior patterns that we don't even know where they're coming from? Uh, and, and they're really driving us in these areas and we will need to deal with them in one way or another. Substance abuse is really clear. We're, we're 
anesthetizing ourselves. We're medicating the problems that we can't face. The other ones are more sneaky. We call those process addictions. And so that would be gambling and oversexing and overbuying and, and overworking and all the other things that we do. But basically, they're fulfilling the same function, which is to, to keep us so distracted that we don't have to deal with the cause and the core issues that are driving us and the unhappiness and the, the stress, the anxiety, the depression that is following us along. And, and so, and, yeah. And doing so... And doing in these process situations doing it because we don't necessarily know what to do what else to do right right, it, right. There, there is a degree to which maybe we need a guide to help us find yes. home and and the process addictions are sneakier because often those will give us social acceptability and reward you know when you overwork you get rewarded for it and 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 so it's those can hang on for decades and much longer actually addicts and alcoholics have an advantage over us because their drug of choice is so destructive that it's going to take them to the precipice a lot sooner, usually, than, than uh, those of us who are doing process addictions. But we need to deal with the core issue. But we have to get to the point that it's painful enough that we realize we can no longer continue in the way that we have been continuing. Now, let's please stay, let's the, please stay in this level for just a moment. I, sure. I, I would like to understand... And again, to the most secular mind you can speak to here, what's special about Jesus in this contemplative process? Why is the contemplative relationship there? What makes it different and unique? Well, I don't know that it makes it unique. It makes it different because it's all inclusive. It's all under one roof. You know, therapy is going to deal with it in the way that it deals with it. And, and then, you know, religion is going to deal with it the way it deals with it. What Jesus is doing is bringing everything together. It's, it's a process of living life that will take us through the necessary steps. What you find out when you're working with people in early recovery is that you cannot be um, overly cognitive. You, you can't be uh, abstract and you can't be theoretical. You can't give Why? them overarching Why? terms. I'm sorry? Why is that? Why is that? Because they're in such a place of distress that um, they're not going to be able to process that. You know, they're, they're, they're not at a place in, of stability enough that they can deal with overarching issues that are presented in that way. What they need is a concrete step that they can take. And then the one after that and the one after that. I mean, all, you know, you, you've heard about, you know, you're, you're going to be sober for a day and it's a day at a time. Really, it's a moment at a time when it comes right down to it. And we need to know what we're going to do this moment right now and the moment after that, that will keep us on the track that we have set our feet on. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He gives us the step and the step after that, concrete steps that we can take that will take us where we want to go and we'll understand when we get there. And then we can express it in terms of our theology and in any abstract way we want to express it. But we don't start there. We start with a concrete step that takes us to an experience that can convince us of some sort of trustworthiness that will allow us to come to a conviction. And, and as we practice this way of life, we can become more and more sure-footed as we go. But that's the only way that you're going to deal with anyone who is in early recovery or anyone who's in distress. People that come for counseling, they need a concrete step that they can take that will relieve some of the pressure so that they can take another and another one after that. Um, and so that's the way that we're working in this way. And for everyone who's recovering from something, 
we all need these concrete steps that we can start to take that will give us some results. So uh, we've dealt with this now kind of at the individual level. We've uh, discussed the, the revolutionary idea that every one of us has something we're dealing with. We're all struggling in some way and we all have things to unpack. Failure to unpack those things. And this is where I'd like to kind of land our time together. Failure to unpack those things has social implications. It impacts our family, impacts our communities, impacts our country, impacts our world, right? So there is a need to have this kind of dialogue begin. There is a need maybe to deal with stuff. And I, I typically am speaking to an audience, Dave, that is looking for solutions to social problems that don't involve government force being applied to it, right? We're going to impose our will on people and make everybody do the same thing. So let's take just the, this, this final, these final moments to talk about maybe the, the Jesus program. Like, what is it, how, how can we begin to tie our communities together first by tying together the self? I believe that Jesus would say that the kingdom comes from within. Like he said, you'll never find it out there by observation. Look, here it is, or there it is. It's within, it's among, it's in the midst of. That's where we need to start. And he said, you seek first the kingdom and God's righteousness, uh, and then all else is going to be added. Um, that may sound legal, but it's not legal in terms of the way that we would parse that you know, from an Aramaic perspective. But the idea here is that we start from within and we start with us. Another thing that you learn in, in substance abuse recovery is that you cannot change anybody. You can't get them to do what's in their own best interest as you see it. The only person you can change, and it's not going to be that easy, is yourself. And so we start with ourselves. If we want our community to be better, then we need to be better at living in community. And then our touching of each person and each encounter that we have, if we really are leaving people better than we found them, is going to be making our community better as a whole. We don't need a majority of people who are healthy and able to self-regulate and are aware enough in real time that they can make choices that actually benefit everyone who's affected by their choices. We don't need a majority to change our community. It's a small tipping point. You know, it, it's, 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 a, it's a group that Jesus calls it the yeast that, that just you know, infects the lot um, that is going to change our communities from the inside out. Jesus was always working from the bottom up and not the top down. And I'm convinced that lasting change occurs in the same way, from the bottom up and not the top down. So before we are going to start to look at policy, before we're going to start to look at systemic change from the top down, if we haven't fought the internal revolution before we try to fight the external revolution, then we're really going to be creating more problems than we solve. And so starting there so that we have people who are leaders in our communities, local, state, national, who have this ability to be fully present and to stand above the needs, their individual needs, and be able to see and be aware of the needs of the group is the way that any change is going to get taken place that is something that we want to see in our lives and in our communities. Thank you, Dave. Uh, Bill, I'm, I'm, I'm marveling here because, you know, again, this is not how I would have put the, even exactly the way he wrapped up, I wouldn't have said it like that at all. And yet I understand like it, it, everything we've been trying to accomplish here on the show rhymes with what you just heard, right? The idea that the change is you, 
this this idea that that the best way that I can make a change is to change myself, and the second best way I can make change is to is to show grace to others, and that's you know at the end of the day what it's all about. And if we don't, then we get the curse of the policymakers who come <laughs> in and impose uh, on us uh, things that are that violate our happiness, harmony, and prosperity, and and and, and expand dysfunction and fail to get down and address the root issues that we've been talking about today. So even if, Bill, you know, I send this out to the Zero Aggression List and the Zero Aggression Project's a sponsor of this show. And we got a lot of secular, even atheist people on that list. And, you know, sitting through this whole episode, you know, you kind of like, even as I'm sitting here, I'm thinking of them the whole time. Uh, how, how is this landing and resonating with them? Well, you know, I want to understand that everything that Dave's suggesting here didn't pick your pocket or break your leg. And it was proposing that we all essentially connect to a, a source that would cause us to be kinder, not just to others, but first to ourselves. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me, Jim. And I can imagine that maybe people watching this first podcast are saying, you know, we kind of talked around the edges of this, but we never really got down to specifics. And maybe that's something that would be good to talk about in terms of breaking this down, how does a person actually engage a way like this? Um, because the anarchy of grace, I love your name, by the way, the anarchy of grace is the scandal of grace, that this is a love that has no degree. You know, it is showered on everyone equally, and that is so unfair. And so how do we come to terms with that unfairness in a way that it starts to illuminate us in a way that we can really love as Jesus loved, connect as Jesus connected, have the kind of communities we want to have. And um, that's something that I suppose we need to talk about some absolute concrete next steps. Yes, I, I, I'm fairly certain, not positive that the notion of the scandal of grace is a phrase coined by uh, Philip Yancey in a book called What's So Amazing About Grace uh, back at the beginning of the century. Mm -hmm. And ever since having sat, I sat down and studied that book with a group of like 40 people. You know, we got together every Sunday night and talked about that book. And it, it's been, that, that idea has been with me kind of, you know, kind of the splinter in my mind, I guess, for two decades, that when the chips are down, that's the hard thing to do, right? I mean, most people want to resort to judgment. They want to castigate and put somebody in a spot. They want them to experience shame. That's what they want. And we're aware that that's pervasive around us and we absorb that and we become aware that we should feel some sense of shame. Like who we got to avoid everything that we do, everything we can to avoid being put in a sense of shame. And, and we start to lose touch with the source in the process of all that. So I appreciate this. I really do. We're going to, we're going to, we'll do more. We'll get into more. I think we needed to lay some groundwork here today and, and, and not just you and me continue to get to know each other, but, uh, the audience getting to know you as well as uh, as Bill has uh, gotten to know you. So thank you, Dave. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh my gosh.